and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we started a study of the book of Ephesians, and we're going to continue that here tonight. In Ephesians chapter 1, we've been looking at the great blessings that are ours because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. And how God made us sons through the work of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And how that was all according to His good will, the pleasure of His good will, that God wanted a family. And that that was the desire of God, that was His plan for the ages, to have a family. And He accomplished that through what Jesus Christ did for us. And we'll pick it up here this evening in verse... 13, to get the context of moving forward. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or um, token or pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So it's talking here about that after we believed, we were given this gift of Holy Spirit. And it talks about us being sealed with that gift of Spirit. Sealed. You know, when you seal something, you do it for a couple of reasons. But you seal, one of the reasons you seal something up is so that the contents don't just pour out, right? And the way that so many Christians are, when it comes to spirit and what they believe, it would never be sealed because they think that you can constantly lose it. If you could constantly lose that spirit, then it's not, you weren't sealed. It wasn't sealed up. Because to be sealed, that's what it means. It, you seal something, when something's sealed, then that's all protected, and it's set. And this is sealed, that spirit is sealed within us until the redemption of the purchased possession. What's the purchased possession? Is that you know a house? Is it a boat? Is it a car? Is it a new shirt? What's the purchased possession? Us. We were what was purchased. What was the price? Jesus Christ's blood. He's the one that purchased us, and that's the context it's talking about. It's talking about what Jesus Christ did for us. And Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, he purchased us. He redeemed us. He redeemed us by that shed blood. He redeemed us from the devil's hand, as we considered last time. And the redemption here of the purchased possession is talking about that full redemption that will take place 
when Christ returns to gather us together unto God. When he comes to claim us and take us back, he's paid the price, and there's so many wonderful rights that we have and such great power that we have as a result of that. But the full redemption will, will happen when he takes us home, when he takes us back to the Father. And that's until that time that Holy Spirit keeps us sealed, and it is the earnest or the pledge of that inheritance. It's that you know, proof that we have something more coming, that we have something more coming. You know, once you know God's Word and once you understand what power you have and you know the promises of God's Word and you know the principles from God's Word, if that's all there was, that in itself would be a good deal. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was nothing more than you know, this life now and what we have to enjoy now, it would still be a good deal. It's like somebody used to say that, you know, we're having such a good time going to heaven that if heaven wasn't there when we got there, we wouldn't care because we're having such a good time going. And that's true when somebody's walking on God's word. Mm-hmm. When they're walking, now, you know, you can, it doesn't mean that things don't go wrong at times. But boy, when you walk with God and you know God, and you have his goodness in your life and his power in your life, then that in itself would be more than what anyone could ask for. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. We have so much more in store. We have an inheritance that we're coming into. You know, If you ever start to feel like, you know, geez, I don't have two, two nickels to rub together, well, remember, that's okay. I've got an inheritance I'm coming into any day now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. You've got an inheritance that you're coming into when Christ does come back. Mm-hmm. An inheritance. Because this is something that is ours as sons. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Think about that one. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Now, we may not deserve some big inheritance, but when you think about Jesus Christ and how wonderful he was and what he did, certainly you think, well, yeah, he, he, sure, he surely deserves some, you know, some kind of inheritance. He's God's son. It seems like no surprise and no hard thing to imagine that God would have some great inheritance for him. But it says we're fellow heirs. We're joint heirs with him. So we come into that same inheritance. He did all the work, he did all the, everything that was good, but it's an inheritance. You know, an inheritance really is, is something that's not earned anyway, it's something that you inherit, you know. A lot of guys running around, you know, they, they have all kinds of wealth that they never acquired, but their father or grandfather worked hard and they inherited it. Well, we have this great inheritance because we are God's sons. Boy, this is what Ephesians shows us, how rich we are spiritually, all that we have. And God has given us so much that if it ever really hits us, then life is just thrilling. Life is just thrilling, just imagining, just thinking what we do have. And that's why what follows here, 
in light of all these things that we've seen so far in Ephesians, talking about the inheritance, talking about the great mystery, talking about being God's sons. It's why what follows this is a wonderful prayer in Ephesians that we would understand what is ours. There's two great prayers in Ephesians. Two great prayers in Ephesians. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 1, and the second one is in Ephesians chapter 3. Both are prayers for us to have knowledge. Prayers for knowledge. The first prayer is one for us to have a mental understanding, a mental comprehension. The word that's used in the context here, and we'll see it in a minute, for knowledge is oida, which the from that Greek word, you get the word video. The word video is, is you know, derived from that Greek word, oida. And that's kind of what it is. It's in a picture. that we would. God wants us to be able to picture this in our minds. The second one is an experiential knowledge, and we'll get to that in another sitting. But in verse 15 it says, wherefore. And wherefore always indicates that what is about to be said is a result of what has previously been stated. Therefore and wherefore are those connective words, I talked before about connective words, those connective words always indicate that what's about to be said is a result of what has previously been stated. So whenever you see the word wherefore, therefore, just stop and ask yourself, why for, wherefore is the therefore, therefore? Mm-hmm. You know, what's it there for? What's it, what is this a result of? And then you go back and you see it. Mm-hmm. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my what? Prayers. Prayers. He's telling them that since he heard of their faith, since he heard of their love, that he prays for them all the time. And he prays this specific prayer. But here's the thing about a prayer in the Word of God. All of this is written by revelation. This wasn't just what Paul thought would be nice to pray for these guys for. You know, It wasn't like, well, you know, I'd like for them to have you know, some happy days, or I'd like for them to have a nice life. It's not some vague prayer. This is something specific that God told Paul to pray for them, to believe for them for. Another way of stating that is in the essence, it's like God's prayer and believing for us since this is the words that God gave Paul to write. And that prayer is, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. There's that word knowledge that I was talking about. It's a prayer that we would have spiritual knowledge, that God would give us revelation knowledge. Revelation, revelation is information that's impossible for you by your five senses to know anything about. That's what revelation is. It's information, certain truths or facts about which it is humanly impossible for you by your five senses to know anything. That's what revelation is. Mm -hmm. So this is a prayer 
that you would understand this by revelation. That God would give you this picture. That God would reveal this to you. That you would see this in your mind. Verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. What a beautiful figure of speech. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That you know, God would just brighten up the so that he could see it. So many times in the Gospels, when Jesus Christ taught people and he shared some incredible truths with them, it, it just went right by him. It just went right past him. And he uses the phrase many times in the gospel that seeing they would not see. Well, here the prayer is that seeing we would see. That we would see it because so many people don't see the great things of God. You know, it talks about in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan, the God of this world, hath blinded the eyes of them that believe not, lest they would see. And so many people are just blind, just spiritually blind. And until you come to God and ask Him to open the eyes of your understanding, you don't see the great things. You know, Ephesians can be one of those things that for so long for people is just, it goes past them. Like when Jesus Christ told His apostles about the resurrection or he shared other great things, and they just never got it. There's great, great treasures here. And these great treasures, when we do understand them, they change your life. If you didn't have any idea of what electricity was, if you had grown up in some remote, remote part of the world, and you walked into this place, and even though it had electricity going through it, if you didn't understand what that was, then you might never utilize it. You might never utilize it. You know, We'll make it just a little more realistic for you. We'll say that you haven't called the power company to turn on the power. Okay? So you never know, and there you are, still living by candlelight, and the only music you get is when you sing or somebody else does. You know, and so on and so forth. You miss out on all the greatness of what that power can do because you don't know it's there. God wants us to know. He wants us to know and to understand what we have. The eyes of our understanding being enlightened that ye may know, that you might have that mental picture of it. And now there are three things specifically listed. The first one is what is the hope of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? Hope, biblically, is used in a very specific way, and it's used very different than the way it's used in, in you know, common language today. Most of the time when people use the word hope today, it's something they don't think is at all possible. You know? They're planning a picnic, the weatherman says there's a 95% chance of rain. They look out the window. The, the sky is dark with clouds, and they say, oh, man, I really wanted to get, go to that picnic. I, I hope it doesn't rain, <laughs> but they fully think it will. You know? Or you know, 
They hear about the companies closing down and it's moving, packing up and moving to Mexico and everybody's going to lose their job. And they hear this, oh, I, I hope that doesn't really happen. But they're pretty convinced it will. But that's not how hope is used biblically. Biblically, hope is always used of something that definitely is going to happen but is not at this moment presently available. Okay? Not something you can believe for at least. The first place it's used in the Bible is talking about um, a pregnancy. And in the, in the book of Ruth, when Naomi says, if I were to, to have a husband and, and were to get pregnant, you know, have hope is the word it says, would you wait around until those kids grow up? Um, now, when you're pregnant, you know, that's something that's definitely going to happen, but it's not presently available. You can't, you know, a lot of women in their sixth month would like for it to happen, but you got to wait the full term. The hope that it's used of in this context and the hope that it's spoken of most specifically for us today is the hope of Christ's return. The hope of Christ's return. And the first thing that God wants us to, to understand, to really be able to picture, is that. To be able to picture that return. That that's just such a reality to us. That, boy, we're excited about it because we can just see it in our minds. We can see, and it doesn't mean you have to, you know, get every detail. Okay, so, you know, this is how it's going to go down, and you can, you can do a better job of doing that movie than somebody else once did. Mm-hmm. But that you've got this whole thing, but that it's real. That, boy, you see it, that you can see and you understand what's going to happen. Number two, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Mm. This inheritance that is ours, God wants us to understand it. He wants us to be able to picture that, to picture that inheritance in our minds, to picture what it's going to be like, how great that will be. Picture how happy you will be. Picture how wonderful it will be when we are in heaven, when there is no more tears or sadness, when there is no more heartbreak, when you never have to say goodbye to a loved one. Picture those days in your mind. And the third one is what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe? What is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who do what? Believe. Believe. God wants us to be able to really understand just what power is ours. What power we have. And that power is talking about the power to those that do believe. And it goes on to describe this power in verse 20. This power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. This is the power that is given to us. It is that same power that was used to raise Christ from the dead, and not just raise Him from the dead, but set Him in the heavenlies far above, way far above, all principality, power, might, and dominion. It wasn't just that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Other people were raised from the dead. 
It isn't even just that he was raised from the dead to die no more. It's that he was raised from the dead and then set in the heavenlies far above, way far above all principality, all power, all might, all dominion. And God wants us to understand that and understand that that's the power that we have, the power that is greater than any other principality. You know, principality are rulers. Any ruler on earth and any ruler, you know, that is any spiritual ruler, the adversary in his whole kingdom. We've been given power that is greater than that. That's why it says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because we've been given that same power that Jesus Christ had that set him far above that and power, and might, and dominion, rulership. We've been given all of that. And verse 22 says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Everything is under his feet. He is above everything, and all of that is under his feet. And Jesus Christ has been made the head of the church, which is his body that fills all in all. You're part of that all. You are part of that all. And he fills all in all. We are completely filled with the fullness of God in Christ in us because this is what he did for us. Chapter 2, verse 1 You see the first word there is and. And this is a good example of how the breaking of chapters was not done by God, but it was done by man. You know, God never divided his word into chapters and verses, or or for that matter, added the punctuation. That was all done in the as the translators were working it. And many times they did a great job. And like I said last week, when it comes to a lot of that grammar and a lot of that structuring of the sentences in chapter 1, they did a wonderful job. But then there's other places where you just scratch your head and say, what were they thinking there? What were they thinking there? Why did they divide a chapter in the middle of a sentence? Because that's what they did. And, and is a continuation. They divided that chapter right in the middle of a thought. Right in the middle of that thought. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. God made us alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. At one time, before Jesus Christ saved us, we were just dead in sin. We were dead in trespasses and sins. There was nothing we could do to help ourselves. If you're dead, you can't do a lot for yourself, right? You're dead, you know. Not much you can do to improve your situation, you're dead. But Jesus Christ made us alive. He quickened us. He made us alive. And we were dead in those trespasses and sins that we walked in according to the course of this world. You know, walked, that word walked, 
it's, it's your whole manner of living. That's what that word means. To walk is the way that you conduct yourself. It's the way that you live. And the way that we lived, what we lived in, were just trespasses and sins. And those trespasses and sins were according to a certain standard, according to, you know, what were those trespasses? What was that like? What was that manner of life like? What was it according to? It was according to whatever the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, wanted us to do. That's what it was according to. You know, when you're out there before you, before you know Christ and before you're endeavoring to live God's Word, you think you're just your own Lord. You think that you're just following your own desires. You think that you're just following your own will. You think that you're controlling everything and you're in charge of everything and you're just doing what you want. You think that. Because you don't see that you're a pawn. You don't see that you're a puppet. You don't see who's pulling the strings. You know, you are, you know. You, you, the unsaved, he's just a puppet, and the adversary's the one pulling the strings. He's the ultimate puppet master. And these people are just following the course of this world. That's what it talks about, verse 3. Among whom? Among those children of disobedience. And there's a couple of different children mentioned in the context here. There's the children of wrath and the children of disobedience. And those are two different groups of people. Children of disobedience refers to those that are actually children of the adversary, children of the devil, those born of the seed of the devil. That's, that's something that is talked about in God's Word, and there's people that fall into that category. Children of wrath is just referring to the original nature of man. And until you're born again, you're just a child of that nature, that nature that is a nature of wrath. It is the children of disobedience, those born of the seed of the adversary, that set the courses of this world. The devil is referred to as the god of this world. And in that capacity, the term Satan is used to describe the way he works as the god of this world. Those terms are used very specifically and with great exactness. When it uses the word devil, that's referring to the personal presence, the personal entity of the devil. The one who at one time was Lucifer, who at one time was you know, an angel of light, was the bright morning star at one time until he rebelled against God. And then he became the devil, and he is the Satan. But Satan specifically refers to the devil using his authority has the God of this world to control circumstances and situations. It's, it's extremely rare that somebody is influenced, tempted, controlled by the devil himself directly. Jesus Christ was tempted when he was tempted by the devil himself because he had to be able to withstand the greatest. But normally, it's the devil working through his kingdom. And we can go into great in-depth study on this, but the words are all there and they're used, the different words for, for devil and devil spirits and all these words that are used. And you see as you study this out that there's a kingdom. 
And at the head of that kingdom is the devil. And then he's got, it's like an army. He has generals and colonels right down to buck privates. And he'll work with those and he'll work with them as he gets people to open up their minds to allow devil spirits to come in. But he'll also work with those that are then his seed. And that's the other way that he'll directly work is through them. And they set up courses in this world that the people that are just foolish enough follow. We all fall, fell into that at one time. That's what it's talking about, verse 3. Among whom we all had our conversation or behavior in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature we were the children of wrath, even as others. You see, that's why the children of wrath refers to just nature. And as the children of wrath, we had our behavior, and we just kind of followed those courses that were set up. You know, it's like watching a rat in a maze. He just follows that course. You know, he thinks he can go wherever he wants, but it's all controlled. There's only so many options there. And that's how it is for the unsaved. There's only so many options. Uh, it's... I like the movie that has an illustration of this, the movie The Truman Show. You know, the guy goes his whole life never realizing that he's being manipulated, never realizing that he's being controlled, never realizing that although he thinks he's doing whatever he wants, there's only so many options that are available. And then when he finally catches wind of that and tries to break free of it, boy, that's when all hell breaks loose for him. It's a funny kind of a movie. Well, in a lot of ways, that's how it is for the unsaved. He's, he's like that guy in that movie. But verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in his mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive, quicken us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. God got us out of that rat trap. He got us out of that maze, that rat race. He got us out of that and he set us free so that we now really can have liberty, we really can have choices, and he, he would desire that we make the choice to live for him. God bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.